Welcome to the Pod the Lab Invertebrate Biology Series. This podcast series is designed to help you explore the diversity and role of invertebrate life on this planet. You'll meet researchers from the School of Biological, Earth and Environmental Sciences and invertebrate curators from Australian museums. Today's Pod the Lab topic is on sponges. Welcome to Sponges and Cnidarians Week and we're going to have a quick chat today about sponges. Um, does anyone want to start us off with a question? Anyone feeling particularly excited about sponges? I'm going to ask one then. Torsten, last year when we did a Q&A with the students, the first question you got to ask is, do you have a favourite sponge? Right. So, <laughs> let's go straight to the hand. Right. So, so they're all beautiful, right? And we love them all. Um, I, I could obviously be funny and say SpongeBob SquarePants. Um, but uh, if you talk about a real biological sponge, um, we've been working for many years of, uh, on a local sponge called Simbastella concentrica. Uh, it's a cup-shaped uh, sponge about that size. It's very common around uh, the Sydney area uh, and up and down the coast. And we've been studying this for many, many years, this sponge, um, uh, mostly because we're trying to understand how the sponge and its microbial symbionts work together sort of cope with various environmental stresses. So we've been looking at this sponge over time uh, across um, uh, various places around Botany Bay and trying to really understand how the sponge behaves in response to sort of various environmental stresses. So we've been doing this this quite a bit, um, but I have to say my I, I might get soon new favorites um, because um, I've been just, um, and that's why I look a little bit disheveled, is I've been um, uh, uh, remotely participating in a in a deep sea expedition off the coast of Brazil. So I've been on on video links um, most nights to to look at under video footage of sponges in the deep sea um, at around 800 meter depth. And um, there we've um, looked at glass sponges. Uh, and you probably heard a little bit about glass sponges in my lecture. And there's a sponge called Farea ochre, and um, that just has the most beautiful. Um, fine fine structure and, and um, we've just sampled that um, via um, uh, remote controlled underwater vehicles and we're probably going to bring that back now into the lab and start studying this so you know maybe, maybe there's a new favorite coming up soon nice and anyone else have a, a question for torsten i'm i'm curious about these deep sea sponges and how much they diff like from what you've seen so far how much do they differ from the sponges that you'd see at a shallower depth Right, you know, one of the one of the fundamental differences is that they need to deal with very different environmental conditions. Um, so obviously, the temperature in the deep sea will be colder, right? Somewhere between four and eight degrees. You know, that's maybe on its own not too spectacular. But what is probably more interesting to study is is um, the fact that they are um, living in the dark. Um, so they won't be having the opportunity of um, photosymbionts. Uh, many shallow water sponges um, are, are light exposed, and so they would have uh, microbial symbionts, diatoms or cyanobacteria as their photosymbionts. And these photosymbionts very similar to what we see in corals. Corals would also sort of contribute to some of the um, nutrient acquisition, in particular CO2 or carbon acquisition uh, in shallow water systems. So that those sort of things are actually not occurring in the deep sea. Um, the other thing that's quite common in the deep sea is fairly heavy sediment loads, so they must be able to cope with that as well. 
and actually the particular site that we are looking at um, uh, off the coast of the deep sea site that we've just studying off the coast of um, Brazil is um, uh, one in an oil exploration area. So we suspect that there might be also hydrocarbons leaking into those ecosystems. And that's that's the sponges and the symbionts um, in the sponges actually are capable um, of um, accumulating or, or, or using some as a hydrocarbon as, as, a, as an energy and nutrient source. So that's our hypothesis that we're currently trying to test with some of that work. Okay, Torsten, one of the um, assessment pieces this students are doing in the course is to to do a science communication article and you know tell the public what they need to know about a particular invertebrate if you had to tell people you know if you had to tell people one thing that absolutely had to know about sponges and why we should care about them what what would you pick right <laughs> hold on then i'm doing the assessment task for the students yeah <laughs> <laughs> right do i get a mark as well for this um all right, so I, I, I think one of the things that really I think is underappreciated in sponges is really their potentially very large contribution they make to uh, global geochemical cycles. And, and I know that's going to be a bit hard to sell. Um, <laughs> you know, you can obviously talk about simple things like diversity and shape and, and wonderful and that they filter lots of water, but I think sort of the new piece of research that's coming out is really that they're quite important to filter large amounts of water through their body, accumulate a lot of um, dissolved organic carbon and dissolved organic um, matter in general, and, and that this basically sequestered a lot of, of energy in, in, in the benthos. So I think they're, they're, they're probably very much underappreciated in their role in, in that they have actually in benthic environments, in particular with respect to, to CO2 uh, or DOM acquisition. Nice. Uh, Courtney, do you want to ask your question? Yeah, I was just wondering um, how old sponges are, like what sort of the average lifespan and does that vary among species? Oh, that's actually a very good question. So, I, you know, they don't really senescence, like in, 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 in the sense of, you know, getting old and dying. You know, it's not really well studied in, in sponges, I have to say. Um, what what probably is really you know getting rid of sponges is is you know predation and 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 so they die and depending on on you know what kind of predators you have around them you know they 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 you know they can survive for a few years but they can also probably live for dozens of years um, so in, in in that regards um, you know we've been seeing the same sponges off the coast of Botany Bay for for years right so they can certainly live very extended period of time. Um, um, so, I, you know, I, I, you know, they're probably not in the order of thousands of years, but certainly dozens of years they will live. But it's a good question, actually. I don't really, I don't think people have really studied that extensively. <laughs> good one, Courtney. Um, Hannah, I think you've got your hand up. Yeah, hi. I'm wondering how ocean acidification and climate change might impact this right. island. Right. So, you know, there's a bit of work being done on that. And, and it, it turns out that sponges are probably a little bit more robust than corals dealing with that sort of environmental stress. Um, there have been some some work being done, um, you know, both in, in recent times, but also in, in using paleontological records that show that um, when, when temperatures have increase in the past and 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 acidification has increased you know this what we can't experience is obviously not the first time 
that that sponges have actually fared quite a bit better than corals, and that there have been phase shifts where coral-dominated ecosystems were temporarily being overtaken by sponges. And and I have to now admit a little a little bit of a dark side of me. I'm I'm a big James Bond fan. Um, so I like the James Bond movies. You know they're cringy, you know, for most people, but I'm 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 a sucker for them. And 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 if you look at the early James Bond movies, which which were all about like you know some some villain um, ending up in a beautiful spot in, in the Caribbean, um, you will see that the Caribbean the Caribbean Sea was actually very much at one stage dominated by crawls. But over the last sixty or seventy years, we've seen sponges taking over more more of the Caribbean. So so there's certainly you know. In, in current times, a bit of a phase shift happening, and again, that's sort of confirmed by paleontological records. So, so that that's one observation that that's been made. But but we have also done a fair bit of sort of stress experiments and acidification experiments, and it sort of comes across that the sponge is actually quite quite robust. So I think they, you know, nobody likes to have the ocean being acidified or you know the temperature being dramatically increased. But I think sponges probably will be. You know, I wouldn't call them the vermin or the rats of of the ocean, but um, they probably will. The they will probably do okay, I think. Um, can they? How good are they at habitat, providing habitat, Torsten, where they are coming in when corals have gone? Right. So, so they're obviously not providing the same level of complexity as as as, as a coral reef, right? So it's it's somewhat less um, less less complex structure but but they still they do and i think i mentioned it in my lecture they still provide um certainly habitats and in particular the, the the sponge species that are sort of really porous and very loose in their structure and glass sponges as well they, they will provide certainly habitats for all sorts of little invertebrate critters right um and if you ever if you ever have a chance to go diving here around um sydney um, there's a there's a very nice sponge garden close to bear islands um, and, and you can see all the, the sponges, the erected sponges there, and, and, and certainly it's a very nicely sort of structured environment. And you can take a sponge, and I don't recommend that you do this too often, and you can break it open, and you will see all sorts of feather stars and other things crawling out, right? So they do provide certainly more of a habitat structure than like, you know, the, the classical barren that we also see around Sydney, right? But maybe not quite as complex as coral. So they're sort of intermediate in in, in, in providing habitat structure. Nice. Right. Um, um, anyone else questions, <laughs> particularly for, for Torsten on sponges? I was just wondering, uh, with the sponge reefs specifically, right. are there any aspects of peripheral uh, biology that make them make it advantageous for them to form large reefs in the same way that corals do? Or is it just sort of a a coincidental thing if they were to form a reef. Right. So, 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 so they don't, you, you know, they obviously don't form those calcified structures that, that corals are forming, right? And, and if anything, there are some sponges that actually, those, those boring sponges, those bio-eroding sponges, which I mentioned in my lecture, so they, they actually have the capacity to, to destroy reefs, right? So, you know, when a sponge dies um, or, or, you know, gets partially eaten, then then some of their skeletal material, the spicules, which I think mentioned in my lecture as well, um, they're sort of deposit, right? And then they, you know, they sort of form a little bit of a of, of a layer of 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 dead skeletons, if you want to call it, right? So that's probably the only way how they sort of like really you know, form some sort of more permanent leftover structure, right? 
That's their answer to your question, Joshua. Yes, they don't produce substrate in the same way that corals do, do they? they, they don't, well, other than the, the spicules um, in their bodies, you know, in, in, in the um, calcareous sponges, that's that's based on calcium carbonate, right? So so that's that's obviously CO2 fixation that sort of is brought in, into a carbonate and, and, and those spicules then they, they they can, you know, last for eons. So so actually that's that's a lot of our understanding of the evolution and, and the paleontological history of sponges based on these spicules that then get buried in in sediments and and so you can in the deep sea for example you can go and take a core and you find those spicules then in, in different layers and then you can understand a little bit about what kind of sponges were there at, at various times right. okay sure thank you sarah uh zara what are you saying oh yeah cool sorry, sorry. hi torsten thanks um i just had a question because I was wondering, with an increase in microplastics and plastics in the ocean, have you seen any sort of effect on that as sponges are filter feeders, right? So are plastics, like, affecting them? Is that going to have a long-term effect on the sponges? Plastics are already in our geological records. So I was just wondering if that's affecting sponges at all. Right. So so we haven't done any work on this, but I'm, I'm aware of people having looked, you know, in microplastics being... Uh, you know, found in sponges, and they are right. There's not as too much of a surprise, right? They're, they're filter feeds, and I think I mentioned it in the lecture, like you know, thousands of liters of water through their body, and and they, you know, they they will have little pieces of plastic accumulating in them. Um, I think I've also saw a paper where they the the microplastics might even be ingested. Um, uh, so I, I think in the lecture I mentioned that's that the the one mechanism how. Uh, sponges feed is that they have these um, these cells called coanocytes that have this microvilli structure. It's a bit like a it's like a bit like a basket they have, and 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 these baskets they sort of capture um, anything that flows through the sponge, right? And then and then the cells basically take it up, um, and and typically they want to obviously capture um, you know bacteria or microorganisms or any kind of debris and digest this, right? Use the organic matter and digest this. But obviously, they would also then, in some cases, take up that plastic, right? And and actually, what one way of how people have studied in the past how sponges feed is by actually feeding them um, colored um, latex beads, right? Latex, plastic, whatever. Um, and they basically take them up, and then you can see that latex bead inside the sponge cell, right? Um, so what then the sponge typically do is when they have fascinosotized, when they have basically ingested the, um, the, the the material, then they would have enzymes to digest the material and, and then absorb the nutrients. Obviously, that doesn't work with latex beads and that doesn't work with plastics. But, you know, they also have this process called exocytosis. So when they basically encapsulate a bit of material uh, and they can't deal with it, then they basically, you know, poop it out, if you want to call it, right? So the cell can encapsulate something like an amoeba, right? And then can also expel it again. Right? So, so I, you know, while while it has been shown that sponges and sponge cells would accumulate, you know, any kind of plastic or anything of un, undigestible material, they would also basically push them out again and then let that probably flow out again, right? So, you know, so the, 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 the sponge tissue, you need to see a little bit more as a sort of a really loose dynamic system that can probably deal with a lot of stuff coming in, 
but then can also clear it. And, and I, I did mention before that, you know, deep sea sponges, for example, they deal a lot of with sediments. Um, and so they, they often get just lots of sediments in their body and then can also just get rid of it, clear that out. So I think the long-term effect of microplastics, I think is not going to be too much of an issue, I think, but the jury is still out there. Um, the, the sponges will certainly have microplastics in them. Um, you know, they will then also go into the food chain, right? Because fish will eat it and then, you know, whatever happens then with the microplastic in the fish. So there's certainly a bit of a ecological concern that sponges will accumulate those microplastics and it goes up into the food chain. I don't think necessarily the sponges will necessarily die from microplastic itself, but, you know, um, I, I think mostly because understanding how they feed and how they eat, I would probably think that they that they should be hopefully fine. Um, but um, yeah, more work to be done there. Cool, thank you. That's a long answer to a short question. Anyway, cool. <laughs> Anyone else? Uh, hi. Um, I was just wondering, uh, you mentioned bioerosion in your lectures. Um, is there a large negative impact on coral habitats or not so much? Um, so I, I, you know, pro probably, probably Tracy is, is uh, in a better position to to sort of comment on on how much sponges have damaged reefs, but I I think compared to all the other aspects that are currently threatening the reef, I think the the bio eroding sponges are probably less of an issue. Um, they, they they can, and I think I've shown this in my lecture, some photos. They can they can actually you, you know cause a fair bit of erosion, but 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 there is certainly also competition going on that that prevents sort of sponges from completely you know destroying it, but. Tracy, do you have a, have a bit of a think or like a feel for that? Yeah, so we do see bioeroding sponges come into corals where there's lots of nutrients right. uh, coming to the environment, um, and that's there's pretty lots of things going on there. The the corals are stressed, so they're not competing as well, uh, and the environment favours those um, those cor those uh, sponges being able to to grow and out compete. Um, the corals, but we see them in skeletons of corals in in places where the water quality has has gone down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as, as I said before, like I, I think the the fact that sponges are sort of a little bit more successful um, and under stressful conditions, is, and, and you know, and then having obviously the, the corals being potentially quite sensitive, you know, might give them the competitive edge. Yeah. Awesome, thank you. There's another question. I can't tell who it is though. Jet, jet, is it jet? Hi. If sponges are made up of multiple colonial organisms, what drives them to form a specific shape that you might recognize from a particular species of sponge? Sorry, they're not really colonial in the sense that, a, you know, a coral is made out of, you know, coral bomby or so, it's made out of multiple polyps, right? So so there are, there are, you know, one organism, you know, if you see a sponge, you know, that's one sponge. It's it's not a colonial organism, right? But 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 as I, as I mentioned before, they're, they're obviously made out of different cell types and, and they're somewhat loosely associated, right? We have the, the cranoderm, the cranocytes in the, in the inner parts, these flagellated cells that sort of move water through the sponge. We got the pinacoderms, uh, that's the outer sort of cell layer that, that forms the pores. Um, and then those archaeocytes or amoebocytes in the middle of uh, between those two cell layers, and 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 
you know, they're fairly, the, the, the cells are fairly flexible and, and in particular the archaeocyte and the amoebocyte are totipotent so they can differentiate into all sorts of other cell types. So, so that makes the sponge actually, you know, they obviously work as one organism, but, but they're sort of also um, have the capacity to to change shapes and and and, and rearrange. And I think I mentioned I, I showed one one photo in in my organ in, in sorry a video in my in my lecture about you know you can disintegrate a sponge and and into individual cells and it sort of comes back together. So it's not colonial in 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 the sense of a coral, but it's maybe colonial in the type of the cells can be completely disintegrated and come back together to form that sponge. Um, th there are particular um, you know, there are particular receptors that sponge cells have to recognize their own kinds and then basically come back together. So they have, you know, you might want to call it a primitive immune system already, um, where they basically recognize self and, and non-self. So if, if you mix two sponge, the cells of, of two different sponge species, they don't, they don't work together, right? You need to have cells of the same sponge species and they can sort of come back together. Does that answer your question? Yeah, thank you. Um, and and sorry, sorry. The the way the way a lot of the the the, the structure of a sponge is determined is actually by the formation of spicules, right? So these these calcified um, structures or the the spongin, which is a you know protein based um, a polymer. There are the, there is obviously a, a, a genetic predetermination in a sponge cell to perform. The production of certain types of spicules, right, and certain amount of spicules and a certain uh, um, shape of spicules, and and so that obviously is then important to also give the sponge a certain kind of structure, right. But having said all of that, uh, you know, one of the things that plagues plagues people with trying to identify sponges is that they're so polymorphic. So you change environmental conditions a little bit and the sponge can sort of change its shape and then it looks very different. And you, you swim around and you go like, ah, you know, I've seen this before. And you go like, no, that's actually another sponge that sort of changed a little bit in the shape of what, what you think it is. So sponge identification is is painful to say the least. Um, and that's why we're actually working with this um, nice sponge called Simbastella Constantica that forms always a nice cup. And it seems to be doing this independent on whether you have lots of water flow or little water flow, and you go right. Whew, I, I can I can I can identify that easily. Some of the encrusting sponges, for example, very very difficult to identify, very painful. Does, does that answer? Your question? Yeah, perfect. Thank you. Cool. Excellent. Torsten, do sponge biologists use any of the um, the apps like iNaturalist or Atlas of Living Australia for? trying to overcome the taxonomy problems yeah i um okay. so the atlas of living australia does have a few sponge species in there but but probably the, the the reference database for anybody who's interested in sponges is the um world peripheral database um i think i mentioned this also in my lecture it's probably the most extensive database that people are using to identify um sponges and you know i Maybe my comment about them being completely different in shape and, and size and it's hard to identify is probably a little bit, was probably a little bit hyperbolic. You, you know, if you go to the World Peripheral Database, there are some nice photos of things um, where you can see, you know, if you see that sponge underwater, you can say, you can probably align it with that photo and say that's that particular species. But, 
you know, there are certainly issues with going out there and, and you know, being always 100% confident about identifying a sponge just based by looking at it. Um, uh, luck luckily, and, and luckily we have um, in Australia some of some of um, the um, leading people in sponge taxonomy. Um, that's not me. I'm, I'm a microbiologist by training. I, I I do taxonomy sort of on you know as 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 we um, as as we need it. Um, but there's a guy called in 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 Queensland called John Hooper, um, who's been doing sponge taxonomy and identification importantly uh, for many many years. So you know if you ever start working on sponges and you you find a sponge and you want to make sure that you, you know you you call it the right name, um, send it to John Hooper. Um, and he will tell you whether you're right or not. It's it's a complicated field that that really involves. It's 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 often based on um, spicule shapes and, and and spicule sizes, and that's sort of the main taxonomic key that's being used. Um, there's being a push more and more of, of using molecular taxonomy as well, uh, but the databases for that are not quite as complete as as you wanted. So. But but I think in the next five to ten years you'll probably get to that point that you don't have to bother John Hooper anymore, who's probably is you know will be retiring. But you know rather get your molecular barcodes um, determined and then go back to the database and then uh, match it to to a species name. So um, it's 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 certainly a dying breed. Sponge taxonomists, uh, most sponge taxonomists, I mean, they are you know they're they're older than me, um, and that means something. So um, they um. There's certainly um, we need a new generation of sponge taxonomists, I think, at one stage. But it's not a particular sexy field, I have to say. <laughs> uh, nice. Um, so yeah, last chance for any sponge questions, or you're good. I uh, just yep. have one question, a bit of a less scientific one. What do you think it would take to make sponges completely extinct? Like, what sort of level of catastrophic event? Oh dear, <laughs> it's a very dark question, I have to say. <laughs> If I would be a villain, a super villain, is that the question, right? What? How would you eradicate sponges? What's the medium? <laughs> no desire. I could think about a giant laser that I found. The laser doesn't really work underwater. Um, I, 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 you know, I do, I do think it will be quite tough, right? They have been around for what six hundred fifty million years, right? They've seen a lot of, uh, you know, environmental condition. Um, uh, you know, it will be hard to get rid of them. I, I have to say, in, in particular, you know, you saw, saw the video I, I, I shot in my lecture where you, you can completely mutilate them and they're still sort of come back somehow, right? Um, so it, it will be hard. You know, we could obviously unleash large amounts of predators. Um, you know, if I if I would basically start growing an army of nudie branches and basically release them into the ocean, and then there might be a way to get rid of them. Uh, but then even that might be quite hard, right? Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I could go individually, you know, scuba diving and pluck them out and, and put them on land. I don't like that very much. One of the things that actually sponges are not doing too well is, um, or most sponge species don't really like to be exposed to the air. Um, so once once they get sort of water, sorry, air bubbles into their into their body, they sort of struggle with that to clear that a bit. So um Makes me very sad, I have to say. Thank you. <laughs> I was thinking for like a natural event, but yeah, that works too. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, you go straight to fucking villain. We could start, we, you know, I think again, we, we, you know, we, if you think about a natural events, um, 
you know, you see, you do see, you do see that when you had big storms, um, you do see sponges being washed up on the beach. So, you know, particularly in shallow water coastal systems, you know, they, they, they do then when, when you have a, a storm events, they, they get ripped off, right? And then they float around, right? So that they, they, you know, once, once they, they get released from their substrate, then they sort of like, you know, float around a little bit aimlessly and helplessly and end up on the beach. So, you know, I could imagine like an, a normal storm event that could, could cause a lot of damage, right? Um, but I think, you know, with respect to massive temperature, you know, acidification, I think that, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to survive all of that, but they will be somewhat more resilient than other things. Um, so right. specifically just to wipe out sponges in the marine ecosystem will be probably a bit difficult. Good to hear. Thank you for listening to the Pod the Lab Invertebrate Biology Series podcast. For any more information regarding the content in this course, please email me at tracy.ainsworth at unsw.edu.au.